All right, we are back. We're going to, in this segment, attempt something we've never, I think, tried before. Well, actually, we did try it before once a long time ago, where the host of the program decided to become the guest of the program and then bring on a guest host. We're going to try that again today when dealing with the question of how to address the Kennedy assassination 50 years on. We had a possibility of getting Mark Lane on this program, and we talked about getting Oliver Stone on, and unfortunately, both those gentlemen were not available. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the event, and so today is the show to commemorate it. And what I think I'm going to do is try and answer the questions that are asked about this event, because I think, by and large, those questions can be answered. But to help me do this is our old friend, our oldest pal in this program, Steve Alexander, whose interrogative skills will now be employed to take over the reins of being the host of the program to try and just ask some questions that I think can be answered. Welcome back to the program, Steve. Well, thank you, Douglas. I'm happy to be here and uh, explore this topic that I think probably every American has explored over the last uh, number of years. So. Well, it certainly resonates in the American public, even if you uh, are you know, not like us of the age where you can remember the event. Uh, people still are talking about it. There's been a, a plethora of shows on television of late, mostly fairly dreadful programs. And we'll see if we can't... Uh, do we can to raise the bar? Well, let's start off, I think, with the big question, the question that we look at from maybe 30,000 feet looking down on this event. You know, was there a conspiracy? Yes. Can you uh, break that down for us, maybe uh, separate it into silos where we can take a look at this? Uh... Let, let's start with the fact that we've been told for 50 years now that this event that took place 50 years ago was just an inexplicable thing that happened, a deranged individual took out a rifle, and with no known motive, shot the President of the United States dead. And when questioned about it later, unlike most assassins, not only refused to take credit for it, insisted that he was a patsy and was innocent. That is not a reasonable conclusion and never has been. But it, it, as I understand it, it wasn't really the official report. It wasn't that simple. They did attribute motive uh, to oh, no. Oswald. No, and sir. Attributed no, sir. No known motive. What about the... You can uh, comb the Warren Report to find a motive, you will not find one. No, but I'm just saying, if you look at all of the literature and all of the inquiries made, the big debate, as I understand it, on the conspiracy is whether, not whether Oswald was just a lone, deranged gunman, but was he a disgruntled Marxist who had left the U.S., gone to Russia, come back, Let's Let's, and, start, uh, let's was, answer those one by one. Yeah. Was, was he a genuine Marxist? Apparently not. Why? How do we know that? Well, if you study the life of Lee Harvey Oswald and you try and find an actual genuine communist you ever hung out with, you're pretty hard-pressed to find one. He, he was living in Russia for a period of time. Well, believe me, if you've ever been to Russia back in the Soviet era, you know it's really hard to find a communist. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, well, there just weren't that many of them. Well, here's the deal. Lee Harvey Oswald was almost certainly an intelligence operative, a low-level intelligence operative of the U.S. government. His celebrated defection to the Soviet Union was almost certainly arranged by our government to basically serve him up as maybe a dangle to see if the KGB would try and uh, double him as an agent. But he was on assignment in Russia. Uh, what information do you have that, that lends to the, the notion that uh, he was actually supported by the United States government? Let's put it this way. Uh, a, lo a lot of the data we have on this really goes back to... Uh, Oliver Stone, believe it or not, when he had the movie 20 years ago, 20-some years ago, and revealed to the public that there were just scads of records which had never been released in spite of multiple 
official investigations, the Warren Commission, the House Select Committee, the Church Committee, which looked into a lot of these uh, goings-on, a lot of documents had not been released. Under the first President Bush, they passed a law which basically said that unless there's a compelling reason to retain these records, they should be released. And an awful lot of interesting stuff did come out at that point. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, Oswald's background. In particular, a lot of data about the things you're talking about. Could he have been an intelligence agent? Uh, He, six weeks before the assassination, made a trip down to Mexico City, which has been very mysterious since the weekend of the assassination, when they asked for a tape they supposedly had of someone calling the Russian embassy and identifying himself as Lee Oswald. Only, it turns out, it wasn't Lee Oswald. And they knew during the weekend of the assassination, when they had him in custody, that this was not the man, that someone was impersonating him. This story got buried. We learned a lot about this uh, in the wake of the Records Review Board release. We found out, for example, that no less than J. Edgar Hoover was irked that weekend that he'd been lied to. And they were sent a tape of Oswald, and they knew it wasn't Oswald. Hoover knew something funny was up. So what was the purpose of these putative uh, co-conspirators of... Uh, creating or fashioning this tale of Oswald going to Mexico. I'm not sure if I understand or our our listening audience understands, where does that fit in? Well, on last week's program, we spoke to Jefferson Morley, a former reporter of the Washington Post, who talked about some of the research he's done on on this very area. Morley has been looking at this very issue for for, the last 15 years, and some of the new data has kind of helped sharpen the picture. We're not sure what they were up to, but it certainly appears that some members of the Central Intelligence Agency, as we talked about on last week's program, David Phillips, was supposed to be monitoring the embassies down there, the Cuban and Russian embassies. And here's this guy, Oswald, a former defector, no less, who shows up in Mexico City, talking about making travel to both these nations, And he's just setting off alarm bells all over the place. At one point, a phone call is made, supposedly, from the Cuban consulate to the Russian embassy because it was a big mess about he wants to go to Cuba, then on to Russia. The Cubans said, we can't give you a transit visa till you have a visa from Russia. He goes over to the Russian consulate. They said, look, you can't do this here in Mexico. You've got to do this in Washington, D.C. He winds up getting sort of rebuffed by the whole issue. And at one point, a mysterious phone call is made to the embassy where a guy's saying, hi, this is Lee Oswald. I just spoke to Comrade Kostikov about some of this. The alarm bells were set up because the guy he's referring to, Kostikov, is the head of the KGB working out of the Soviet embassy. So someone is trying to connect Lee Harvey Oswald with the guy at the Soviet embassy who's in charge of assassinations in the Western Hemisphere. They're also trying to uh, basically... Uh, associate Oswald with an effort to get to Cuba. I mean, they're, they're painting a, uh, uh, a, a line down the road that's pointing Oswald to the two communist embassies. The reason probably was they wanted to implicate either of those or both in Kennedy's assassination. Now, that's the worst case scenario. The, 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 the least you can say about it is that Oswald's being manipulated by people and, and they're trying to set this guy up for reasons that are unclear. But I don't think it's all that unclear. I think it's connected to the assassination. How does the uh, Oswald's activities in New Orleans later, uh, upon his return with the uh, that committee, the Fair Play for Cuba committee, how does how does that fit within again the putative co-conspirators? It's directly related, Steve. As we talked about again with Morley on last week's program, those that altercation he had in New Orleans, which is which is prominent, prominently featured in uh, in Oliver Stone's movie, he uh, he shows up at a group called the DRE. 
which is a group of anti-Castro students, and supposedly says, I can help you guys, I want to help infiltrate you guys, and I want to do what you can to, like, you know, throw Castro out of there. He's a day or two later seen out in the streets of New, of New Orleans passing out pro-Castro pamphlets. The anti-Castro guys show up. There's an altercation between them. They all get arrested. Oswald gets thrown in jail. For a pamphleting arrest, he asks for an FBI agent. He gets one, and it seems clear enough that there's some kind of choreographed event going on. The police at the time said this looked like a staged incident to them. When Oswald goes to Mexico City, he tries to use this, this incident of me uh, uh, showing I'm a friend of Cuba to say that's why you should give me a transit visa. The Cubans were like, you know, normally the Communist Party uh, writes a letter that says you're a good guy, and that's what they show up with. This is not going to do. So it sounds like they're just trying to showcase him as being affiliated with an affiliate of uh, Russians or communist uh, sympathizers, which would then lead into the motive for this lone gunman to uh, shoot the president following Bay of Pigs and following all the anti-Castro well, policy of the U.S. government. Is that the the whole Patsy story that Oswald well, you, was you, trying to you, express uh, from— You and I are the same age. You remember this event. You remember Walter Cronkite talking about how— the suspect has been arrested. He is a communist. And of course, everybody's like, well, of course he's a communist. I mean, wouldn't, who would do this but a lousy communist? Now, what information do you have that suggests that he's not, that he was not a communist, but rather a perhaps low-level or mid-level operative that did not know what the U.S. government was setting him up for, but that would show that he, in fact, was affiliated with either the U.S. government, some lower affiliates like the CIA, uh, CIA's connection to the DRE, et cetera, et cetera. I'd refer you to John Newman's book on this, Oswald and the CIA. At great length, uh, Mr. Newman, who's a military intelligence analyst, goes through the whole story of Oswald's defection and how it just doesn't make sense. Newman, by virtue of the fact that he understood how military intelligence works and how files are created for people, noticed something very odd, that even though Oswald defected and, and announced in defecting that he was going to tell the Soviets all the secrets he knew. He'd been a radar operator at a top-secret U-2 base. He might have had potential secrets. Um, this guy should have been um, of great interest to the U.S. government. When someone is of great interest to the U.S. government, they open what's called a 201 file. Oswald did not have a 201 file opened on him. And yet, the CIA was interested in him, interested enough to put him on a watch list of probably the top 300 people in the world they're interested in finding out about, opening the mail of, and learning about. There's a great disconnect between the fact that they apparently put him on a, a hyper-secretive uh, list of people they want to pay attention to, and the fact they didn't open a routine file on it. It suggests the possibility they didn't open a file on it because he was one of our guys. Now, as part of this conspiracy, as you conclude today, based on all the information you've developed and others have developed and studied and digested, is it your, is it your conclusion that Oswald was not involved in what would have been a plot, a direct action to assassinate the president, and he in fact was not one of the shooters in Dealey Plaza on the day of? Well, you know, people have suggested, I, I was just rereading uh, Josiah Thompson's fantastic book that he wrote back in 1967, Six Seconds in Dallas. And one of the unanswered questions he had in that book, he had a section called Answered Questions and Unanswered Questions. Among the unanswered question was, was Oswald an assassin? And he said, now I know this seems really weird that I would have doubts about this. I used to think that people that had doubts were crazy, but not anymore. And the reason he enumerates are, are actually fairly compelling. When they took him into custody, they asked Oswald, where were you during the shooting? And he said, I was in the lunchroom. He named a couple of people that came in the lunchroom during that interim. And sure enough, 
they actually had entered the lunchroom during that interim. At 12.15, one of the secretaries noted that he used to come to get change from her all the time to go to the Coke machine, said she saw him down there. Now, at that exact moment at 12.15, a man out in the street looks up and spots a guy with a rifle up in the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. He did not think that it was Oswald, did not identify that it was Oswald. Well, if he can't be in two places at once. Somebody was up there with a rifle and was observed from the street. He says he was in the lunchroom. That's corroborated by other witnesses. How was the time calibrated between these two sets of witnesses that that moment in time was actually 12.15? The observer on the street noticed that the Hertz sign on the top of the building said 12.15. And how was that calibrated with the witnesses that say they saw him well, she in the lunchroom? Well, she said, I mean, it was between 12 and 12.30. She said it was about 12.15. I don't know that we can say that was to the minute, but, you know, in about that inter- interval, it seems credible. But, but most most compelling for me is the fact that After the shooting took place, a Dallas police officer looked up, saw pigeons flying off the roof, takes a gun out of his holster, gets off the motorcycle, charges into the building, goes up the steps to the second floor, sees somebody inside, enters the lunchroom with a gun drawn, sticks it in the belly of Lee Harvey Oswald about the moment the building supervisor arrives and says, do you know this man? The supervisor says, yes, he works here. They then run up the stairs to try to get to the roof. Later timed how long it took. It was a 90-second interval between getting off the bike to getting into the, the break room. During that same interval, a couple of witnesses left the fourth floor and went down the same stairway and later confirmed this is before they saw the cop and truly going up the stairway. They didn't see Oswald running down there. It's, 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 in, it's actually quite credible, his excuse, that he was not on the sixth floor, he was in the lunchroom. But some someone was on the sixth floor at a minimum to place the weapon and the spent shells in the assassin's nest. So oh. where did that person go from the time that motorcycle officer looked up and saw someone there? We don't know, but Secret Service agents did testify that the back of the Texas School Buck Depository was still unguarded 20 minutes after the shooting. Somebody was up there with a rifle and somebody left the building or came off that sixth floor. What's, what's curious is that there's more than one witness that looked and saw two people up on that floor, one with a rifle. There's also even photographic evidence that seems to support the idea that the window next to the sniper's nest has somebody in it. Now, you can go on the web and take a look at things on YouTube that'll debate back and forth on this. Some say it's just grain in the film and it's not really somebody up there. You make the call on that, but it's possible that there were two people on that floor. When it comes to reconstructing the whole sniper's nest event of, 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 you know, that somebody was shooting from up there, there's some big problems in trying to, to, to say that there were three shots fired from there. One of the shell casings they found has a dented lip on it where it could not admit a bullet. When they examined it, they did not find the same marks on that shell as they did on the two other spent cartridges and, and the live round that was in the rifle. There were some strange marks on it. They were of the opinion that it had been put in an Oswald's rifle and perhaps ejected from a different rifle because it left strange marks on it uh, and dry fired and could well have been left on the sixth floor as a deception, as a ruse. And in what sense? I mean, bring that, bring that to a conclusion that, that he had to get off so many shots, well, but that there, were only, there was one bullet left in the rifle that was unspent. There were two bullets that were found on the floor that were spent and attributed to the uh, Manlicker uh, Karnakow rifle that he had. But this third bullet with a dent in it appears to have been used as like a snap cap, just a placeholder 
perhaps for that gun, but that would only leave him with three shots as or two shots having been fired. Well, one shot unfired and a spent shell that was never fired. I would refer you also to Josiah Thompson's great book on this six sex in Dallas that, that shows photographs of the of the dent marks on this and why there's some strange anomalies. When you reconstruct the crime, it, it you know, and, and it's interesting that uh, I guess fresh as today's news, Fidel Castro apparently is uh, saying now that uh, back in Cuba, they tried to reconstruct the crime and said there was no way that anybody could have done that shooting. And the fact is, CBS News and a lot of other people tried to reconstruct that piece of shooting. And even the, the United States top marksman had a hell of a time trying to get off that many accurate shots in a very short interval of time. It's rather more likely that uh, there were three different teams of people shooting. And the compelling reason that you might conclude that is that there's pretty good evidence that Conley and Kennedy were hit bam, bam in an initial volley with it too short of a time interval for, for that rifle to have possibly been worked. They were both shot from the rear. That means that there's another assassin shooting from the rear besides beside somebody in the Texas School Book Depository. The fatal shots to Kennedy, based on medical and photographic evidence, support the idea that he may have been hit twice in the head, bam, bam, first from the grassy knoll, second from the rear which means at this point, you really need three guns to make this happen. Okay, now before we get to the forensic analysis, uh, the reconstruction of the uh, shooting uh, as it occurred that day leading to the death of Kennedy, we've already talked about the possible putative motive or pretext that was created by the powers that be that we'll talk about a little later in terms of branding uh, Oswald as a Marxist, that uh, you know he was pro-Cuba, pro-Castro, and uh, therefore wanted to take out our president and his administration that had perpetrated the Bay of Pigs and, you know, blah, 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 all of the anti-communist, anti-Castro stuff. Yeah. So assuming that there was, either with Oswald involved or Oswald not involved, some other mechanism or some other group of, a cabal of people that wanted to get rid of President Kennedy that didn't share the same motive that was attributed to Lee Harvey Oswald. There is no motive ever been attributed to Lee Harvey Oswald. The motive was attributed to him that he was a Marxist, he was pro-Castro. That's not a motive for shooting a president. There's a lot of Marxists out there that are not assassins. <laughs> That's not a motive for anything. Pretty well put out in all these programs that, that uh, the reason that uh, uh, Oswald shot the uh, president and previously alleged to have shot the general uh, is because they were anti-Cuba, anti-Castro, and wanted to overthrow him. I, I would beg to disagree. Whatever you're seeing on these television programs, there is no motive that is ever credibly, I mean, even remotely ascribed to Oswald for supposedly what happened that day. And and I'm glad you brought up that about, that about shooting of General Walker, um, uh, because the Warren Commission concluded when they looked into Oswald's background that, boy, he really was kind of a creepy guy. He tried to shoot a right-wing general in Texas. But a contemporaneous news accounts of that event described two people fleeing the scene, which is curious, and uh, supposedly a general sitting at his desk, sitting, gets missed by the assassin outside his window. And when they dug, dig a slug out of the, uh, the wall, it's a 30-odd six. Contemporaneous accounts refer to a 30-06 shell, which is not compatible with Oswald's weapon. There are lots and lots of problems with the General Walker story. So who was behind the killing of uh, President Kennedy, if not Oswald, or if Oswald, in conjunction with other shooters, 
Well, if we're going to cut to the chase, the prime suspect in this case is not the mob. It's, it's not Lyndon Johnson. It's certainly not the communist governments. It's not the, uh, it's not the driver, like some idiots trying to claim that, you know, they get some fifth, eighth generation of the Zapruder film and say, look, you can see the, uh, the driver turns around and plugs him with a pistol. Crazy stuff. There's a lot of crazy, crazy stuff in this case. But we come back to the fact that the Central Intelligence Agency's fingerprints are all over this, from setting up Oswald to having staged events with groups they were funding. The group that he had the fight with in New Orleans, we find out only many years later, was being funded to the tune of $51,000 a month by the Central Intelligence Agency. The DRE? Yes, the DRE was, was basically a tool of the CIA. Um, there was an assassination program originally set up to take out Castro. Uh, the person in charge of that from the CIA was William Harvey, a name you may not be familiar with. Harvey uh, initially apparently tried to get some of the mafia. This is a famous story. Santos Traficante and, uh, and, and Sam Giancana to help. They were using intermediaries of, of Bob Mayhew and, uh, and sort of mafia all-round um, player Johnny Roselli. Harvey did organize a group of assassins, apparently, to try and take out Castro. Well, now, it's hard to get to, to communist leaders. You know, just like the CIA found, it was very hard to penetrate the Eastern Bloc. Uh, to, so they, t they picked lighter, easier targets, perhaps, you might say. There were assassins that were certainly being hired and trained. And the theory is, and it's, you know, a fairly credible notion, that this, these same assassins were then turned against Kennedy because, well... William Harvey hated Kennedy. A lot of people in the CIA hated Kennedy. They tried to blame the Bay of, Bay of Pigs fiasco on him, even though it was their own damn fault, and didn't, just to say didn't like the guy. I mean, Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA for many, many years, the, the oldest boy of the old boy network, um, was fired by JFK in the wake of the Bay of Pigs, and there was no love lost there. So the fingerprints in this thing seem to point to the Central but, Intelligence Agency. But to kill Agency. the president, assuming that the CIA was up to their neck in trying to take out Castro and that they were angry as you could be based on the, the Kennedy's refusal to give air support during the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion and all these complaints they had about him to kill him, to take him out. I mean, what that, that is to, to conjure up or develop or live that kind of intention or goal based on political differences and practical differences and whatever was going on with the Cold War, doesn't that seem a bit far-fetched? Is it any less far-fetched than the notion that a so-called Marxist who's apparently not maybe a real Marxist because he keeps hanging out with some strange right-wing people with no motive whatsoever just decides to shoot him one day? I mean, at least you, you have a more credible explanation for what may have gone down by looking at people that we know hated Kennedy. Oswald, there are people that knew him uh, when Kennedy's name came up where he spoke very favorably of the president. There, we don't have any evidence that there was any hatred between this man and the guy that he supposedly shot. So I think it's, you know, I, and, and when we talk about like the Central Intelligence Agency, every nation needs to have intelligence. I mean, you can't operate a business, let alone a country, without having data that you can rely upon. We need a Central Intelligence Agency, and no one is saying that as an agency, the, the CIA killed the president. They're just saying that certain members of our Central Intelligence Agency apparently had a bone to pick, hated him for a number of reasons, and are certainly plausible culprits. Now, one often hears that it's impossible to maintain a conspiracy of this magnitude 
that it's nearly impossible to keep people quiet, the number of people who have to be involved, that it just isn't possible to garner that much direct action shooters and all the organization and money and disinformation yeah. and et cetera, et cetera, in order to pull this off. People say that, but I don't know what they're basing it upon. As far as I can see, there are there are myriad conspiracies out there that are still intact. Have, have there been any... Uh, breaks in the armor protecting this conspiracy since the shooting to today, where people have come forward and said, well, you know, there is some truth to that. Well, there's a deathbed confession of E. Howard Hunt. First of all, who was he? Give us a little background on E. Howard Hunt. Well, thank yeah, thank you for that prompt. Uh, people do forget. E. Howard Hunt first came to prominent national attention when there was a burglary at the Watergate you may have heard about back in 1972. There were five guys caught in the building. They were all Bay of Pigs veterans. One of them, James McCord, was a big wheel CIA electronic monitoring guy. And across the street, assisting the operation, was G. Gordon Liddy, future radio personality, <laughs> nut extraordinaire of the FBI, and E. Howard Hunt from the CIA. The theory, which is worth an aside, I think, uh, that Howard Hunt was the reason for a lot of the cover-up that took place in the Watergate. When Nixon, and he's on tape at this moment, finds out that Hunt is involved, he's like, oh, this is very bad. We don't want to open up that scab. This could open a whole can of worms. He told his uh, chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, to go over to the CIA and say, look, I don't want the FBI looking at this. I want you to do one of your deals where the CIA says this is our operation, you know, whatever, call the dogs off. Haldeman goes over and uh, tells Helms, the president has asked you to say, and we, we need some help on this, and that this could, this could trace back to the whole Bay of Pigs thing. Helms, who was then the CIA director, apparently got very, very red in the face, very angry. He said, this has nothing to do with the CIA. Haldeman said, well, uh, Dick, that's what the president told me to tell you. He said, then Helms calmed down, sat down, and said, okay. Haldeman wrote a book about this later and said, you know what I think was going on? I think that Nixon was speaking in a code that I wouldn't know what it meant, but he, he knew that Helms would know what that meant, and that I think he was referring to the Kennedy assassination, which is quite an explosive uh, allegation to make. So as to Hunt, they, I understand they, they, uh, the CIA helped the disinformation establishing he was not in Dallas on that day. No, we do not know where Hunt was on that day. He later sued when someone claimed that he had something to do with the Kennedy assassination, a right-wing publication. He sued them, and in court was asked why it was he felt necessary to sue the publication. He said, look, you know, I have to face my family with this allegation I had something to do with the killing of our president. So on further questioning, Mark Lane asked him, well, where were you on the weekend of the assassination? He describes, well, I was at a Chinese restaurant, and like everybody else, I watched the national tragedy on television with my family. And Lane then asked him, you'd appreciate this, uh, well, okay, if your family was with you and they knew you were with them, why did you have to sue so they wouldn't think you had something to do with the Kennedy assassination? And apparently it was about 45 seconds of silence in the courtroom while he was pondering that. So Hunt is a very uh, unusual figure. He was certainly attached to a lot of operations for the CIA, the invasion of Guatemala. He was involved in the Bay of Pigs in a big way and a lot of paying off a lot of Cuban groups. And when on his deathbed, he says, yes, there was a plot, and I, and I wasn't one of the main movers in it, but I would have been, you know, if I'd been called upon. It did raise some eyebrows. Now, this, the people he's mentioning, he mentions a Cord Meyer, who was a CIA um, uh, fairly high-ranking official. Apparently during the McCarthy days, McCarthy accused Cord Meyer of being some kind of commie pinko, and the CIA rallied to his, uh, his, his defense. But what's curious about Cord Meyer is that we do know that his wife was having an affair with JFK, which, which adds a certain, you know, 
pizzazz to the story. They were divorced by the time Kennedy was having an affair, but it you know would give him a little added, I think, motivation, perhaps. I don't know really how we can assess Hunt's deathbed confession. A lot of people think it's 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 got some truth in it, but you know has disinformation in it as well. It sounds to me, in listening to you uh, respond to these various uh, questions, it sounds like you have minimized the character of any evidence against Oswald of having any kind of motive. You raise a lot of ideas, notions perhaps, suggestions, uh, possibilities of actors within the government, not necessarily a full agency, but actors within the government having a motive, a motive. but at the same time, uh, in terms of uh, intellectual honesty and high-minded discussion, can't really, we really don't know exactly who was involved. Hell no, we don't know, and we're, and we're not going to know until somebody, you know, until some file is found or somebody comes forward or, you know, a, a document uh, is, is shaken loose. Okay, so we, there, there are tens of thousands of pages of documents about people related to this, people related to Oswald, curious operations, that it's hard to justify why they would still be classified if there's nothing to it. There's some sinister implications to the fact that they just can't get these documents loose. Okay, so it sounds like, you know, there's a possibility it was Oswald, but probably not. And then there's a greater possibility and some explanation as to why it would be actors within the government that animated this plot and executed this plot. And now we need, I think, to fully understand why our suspicions are so great is to move into the forensic analysis of this shooting. What implicates uh, the the uh, conclusion that clearly more than one gun, clearly more than one shooter, there's a cover up? There's almost universal agreement in terms of the fatal wounds to the president that the rear of his head was damaged. Some said it was blown out. It was described as having a hole back there. If you feel the bump in the back of your head, the external occipital protuberance, which we all have, above it and to the right is where they said there was a hole. The hole was appreciated there in the autopsy as well, but they noted that it extended much further to the forward, etc. But people talk about the differences in where they saw in the two locations. They all agree the back of his head is basically missing. From the moment Clint Hill springs over the top of the limo, looks down, he sees the back of the head's gone. To summarize the whole controversy in about, you know, a minute if I can, it's just, it's inconceivable that there's not hole back there. And yet, we look at the x-rays and photographs today, and um, it appears the back of the skull is intact. For my money, that's just inconceivable. There's something wrong with the x-rays we have today that, 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 that contradicts what so many witnesses saw. They just simply cannot be wrong. And that, to me, is evidence of conspiracy there, that someone had to have altered this information. Now, there's all kinds of controversy over, you know, the wounds, the nature of the wounds, and, you know, we have to do a whole show on that. But, but just suffice it to say that it's easiest to believe, based on what you see on the Zapruder film and his body motions and the medical evidence, that he was struck twice in the head. What everybody's interested in is whether there was a frontal shot, because the, the un... Uh, uh, you know, the, the person without the, the knowledge, forensic knowledge and ballistics, et cetera, you know, we look at the Sabruder film and say, well, yeah, he clearly got hit like on the right front and he went back to the left rear, just like in all the movies. And what we can see ourselves in that movie, then you hear all of the debate over, no, that's not necessarily true. It could have been a rear shot. What is your conclusion as a medical expert? Mr. Merlin and I actually went out and shot up a bunch of melons to see whether this so-called jet effect takes place. We filmed 30 impacts. It doesn't happen. What is a jet effect for our listeners? The jet effect presumably is the idea that if you put a pumpkin or something up on a post and you shoot it, sometimes as the bullet enters and there's an explosive release out the other end, the jet 
drives it back in your direction. This can happen. You probably, as you've shot guns, you've, from time to time notice this can happen under certain circumstances. But it's not what usually happens. And it's an insufficient explanation by a wide margin from what you see on the Zapruder film. Now, is there anything about the autopsy reports, the, the observations of the Parkland doctors, the autopsy reports by Hume or whoever that guy was at the naval facility uh, in uh, Washington, D.C., the photographs we have, and then what all of the forensic analysis say when they pull it together as to exactly how the trauma that we see throughout all those examinations was caused? It's my belief that when you take a look at that evidence and what the autopsy pathologists describe, which is a very low injury, which is, which is what they also saw in Dallas, how a guy could shoot from above and to the rear, have an entrance quite low in the skull that does not blow out the jaw, does not blow out the face. By all accounts, Kennedy's face was fine. He just had the back of his head injured. There's just problems with how that could be based on the actual position we know his head was in in the Zapruder film. The best reconstruction at this point for this is that the shot that killed him came from the knoll. But a lot of witnesses heard like a bang, bang, a shot right on top of it, you know, two shots right on top of each other. And the acoustics evidence, which is controversial but I think stands up, also shows there were two shots less than a second apart. When you look at the film... It appears he's knocked backwards from the shot that comes from the front. Then you see further changes as he's knocked forward from the shot that comes from the rear. He's knocked over and he's laying down a bit by the time that second shot hits him from the rear, which makes perfect sense for a low entrance. It doesn't make sense unless he's in a very strange posture. So I think that by this point in time, that is the most reasonable explanation for what happened. What is the consensus among the forensic uh, pathologist? and ballistics experts on whether, in fact, there can be a single bullet, as described in this case, and whether there was a single bullet, as described in this case. Well, we're talking about two separate issues. The single bullet thing with the hitting of Conley and, and Kennedy and, and the strike to the head, two different episodes. One comes early in, in the assassination, and one's the finale of the assassination. I believe that uh, ballistically it's possible, because we did experiments on this, for a bullet to strike both men and do what it did. The problem is when you look at the film and you listen to what the Conleys say about what happened and you check out what the witnesses say, that isn't what happened. Could it have been what happened? Well, yeah, it could have been, but it's not. And at this juncture, let's take a short break as we try to do the impossible and summarize the case of the uh, Kennedy assassination in uh, one fell swoop. We've got a few more minutes to talk about it. Let's do that in the third segment. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Steve, don't go away. <laughs> 